Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Many important news stories get little attention on the establishment media until they can't be ignored. And that's where WBAI comes in. To help us learn about them before they reach a crisis point, we've been inviting to our show one of our favorite guests, Robert Henley, an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics. And you can hear his WBAI show most Monday mornings. He also reports regularly for Salon and a number of other prominent news organizations. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People?, is published by Democracy at Work, and I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me, Leonard. Oh, it's always a pleasure. You've written recently that the corporate news media has been working overtime to drum up fear and anxiety in the population about the situation at the border and the supposed great perils of undocumented immigration, also with stories about the Beltway crisis over the impending debt ceiling. Well, aren't those serious causes for concern? I think that we have to expand our vision to the true field of play. And so we have to be, these things aren't just uh, without context. And so I think it's important to look at the fact that this country has been able to hold accountable the individual's uh, who were driving an attempted insurrection to overthrow the United States. And so as long as you if you take your eye off that ball and let it be just kind of like a thing that happened, then you won't see the context of, as I said, this kabuki, which we are is being foisted on us, which is disconnected from our actual lives which doesn't have anything to do with the tribulations and challenges we face day to day and is meant to divide us along racial and economic lines so that indeed the people that make the society work won't progress at all and just fight amongst themselves. Did that answer your question? Well, that starts us off anyway. Um, they're one of the, uh, the issues is whether these immigrants should be allowed to work don't you claim that there's there's a major concern because of a shortage of labor? So I think we have to contextualize it again, as I said, and go back and look at the fact that we've just come through and to some degree are still going through a mass death event, something on the scale that we haven't seen in living memory, certainly in over 100 years. So 1.2 million people are dead from that disease. There are others, millions, uh, who have long-term consequences from the disease, which is not being discussed anymore because it's not part of advancing the gross national product, so we're just not going to talk about it. So that said, there's also a kind of anthropological reconsideration of work in our lives. People observed... Uh, those who were on the front lines and saw people who always put work first, they're not around on this earthly plane anymore. They went through the stresses and strains of holding together a corrupt capitalist society, which abuses working people every day. Even some nonprofit institutions set up to improve the circumstance of working people have been known to do that. And so as a consequence of this, uh, yes, there is um, a certain there are vacancies in the uh, 
in in the employment lineup. The question is, how do you populate that? Uh, also, there is a desire to we know that historically it's undocumented immigrants who bear the brunt of the most abusive aspects of of capitalism. So we saw in the meatpacking plants that paid such a dear price during the pandemic with such a high death count that is was populated by often undocumented people. So, yes, to the idea of having people work, that's a good thing. But for heaven's sake, let's make sure that they have representation, because I'll make the case that even if they're undocumented and don't have the protection of citizenship, oh, my God almighty, they should have the protection of a union. Hmm. Well, on May 11th, the day that President Biden declared an end to the COVID emergency, weren't hundreds of nurses in Trenton, New Jersey, demanding enactment of nurse-to-patient staffing ratios similar to the ones done in California in 2004? Yeah, that's the mind blower. I have to say uh, the New Jersey's HPAE uh, health professionals and allied uh, uh, employees, uh, which is the one of the 14,000 nurses in New Jersey, there are other nurses unions, uh, uh, Genesso and uh, SCIU 1199 and NICE all have important presences in the state. But one of the things that uh, the nurses took me to school about was this fact that in 2004, California adopted uh, as a matter of uh, state law, this idea that there would be a ratio between patients and nurses and that institutions, uh, whether they be municipal, whether they be uh, for profit, whatever, they have to have this standard and they have to make sure that they don't overwhelm the nurses so that they can deliver quality care. And don't you know, we have clear evidence that's peer reviewed over now uh, almost two generations of evidence that shows us that patients have improved outcomes. That's great. Yay for that. We find out that there's less nurse turnover. That's a good thing, especially when we're tens of thousands of nurses short. Nurses are less likely to be injured on the job, and who doesn't like that? And then perhaps most importantly, considering we've just come out of a mass death event, it's critical for infection control. Now, that would be a basic thing you'd want at your hospital, except we have a system and a political economy where Wall Street has got health care by the throat, and they use scarcity as a way to drive profits. And if 1.2 million people die, that's their problem. A national survey predicted that New Jersey would be shy 11,400 nurses by 2030. But um, that seems to be an issue for any number of states in in this area, Connecticut, New York, and Pennsylvania. I would have thought that the, uh, the that these enlightened states wouldn't have these kinds of problems. Oh, well, enlightened states, like, let's not rest on our laurels, ha, ha, ha. Let's look at the fractured response to the pandemic. Now, if we were a rational society where uh, that much collective pain and misery was inflicted on us, we would reflect. We would step back. We have, would have the best minds of a generation considering what exactly happened during the pandemic. But no, no, whenever we want to do that in Congress, their little knock knees like, uh, you know, knock because I can't even contemplate objectively looking at that. What we did have is the states fought each other. We had a um, a dictator in the form of Donald Trump who cynically pitted the states against each other at their most fragile state amidst a global pandemic. I didn't see that written up in an indictment. It should have been. 
And so as a consequence, though, you're right. The nurses are competing. That's a capitalism model for this shrinking talent pool. And you're right. In New York, they've got a problem. Right now, we have uh, brothers and sisters at the New York uh, State Nurses Association are fighting the good fight uh, with the Health and Hospitals Corporation. That is 11 acute care hospitals, uh, some of the best care in the world. It's kind of New York City secret universal care because one of the great things about the mission there is that they do treat and care for everybody, irrespective of their uh, immigration status. Great for us. But right now, they're making 20% less than their peers in other well-appointed nonprofit hospitals that can afford advertising. And... We spend over some like $160 million the city did in the first quarter, maybe higher than that, in the first quarter of last year to pay for traveling nurses mm. because we couldn't bring ourselves to give people a regular job. Well, when Trump was president in the first year of the pandemic, didn't over 3,600 healthcare workers die with close to two-thirds of, of them surprise, surprise, being people of color? That, exactly. As we head into Memorial Day, uh, and I'm planning to take a look at this more in depth uh, in my show on uh, Monday morning uh, on Memorial Day, which is part of the extended pledge drive. This is something that, you know, Memorial Day is a time that we always reflect on the war dead. And so I have been positing, and I ran this by George Gresham from a, a SAIO 1199, that we really need to, at least this year, think about the the thousands, and I believe it's tens of thousands of healthcare professionals, EMTs, firefighters, civil servants, teachers. I mean, New York City alone lost 400 civil servants in that first wave of the pandemic. And it is kind of like Washington hopes we forget. They do not want us to remember because what we need to be doing is erecting in every town square right next to World War I Museum, World War II Museum, Vietnam uh, Museum, and the COVID monument to the people that were acting in society's collective interest and lost their lives trying to help and heal others. We need to do that, not just for their memory, but to hold ourselves and future generations accountable to not be so grossly unprepared. Hmm. You've written, I'm quoting, the awful truth is that America's politics have been so corrupted by corporations that the Supreme Court, Congress, and the White House are all captive to varying degrees of those interests that are steering the 2024 conversation away from health care, which is actually the, the central most important labor issue of our time, whether the AFL-CIO has the courage to say so or not. Can you? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, the reality is that, and we're seeing it here, uh, certainly in New York City, uh, we have a situation where the New York City uh, Municipal uh, Labor Committee represents some 300,000 public employees, dozens of uh, of those unions that represent those workers, a wide array of crafts and devocations. Uh, a decision was made, I might say a cynical one, to sell out the retirees, some 250,000 of them, uh, who had been receiving uh, traditional Medicare and then at no additional cost, a premium plus like backup for them 
for the incidentals. And so they just decided along with it started with de Blasio and now with Mayor Adams to cash that out. It's just that simple. Just what. And so as a result, Aetna Medicare Advantage has been given the contract, the contract on these 250,000 retirees. And the model of the Medicare Advantage plan is that they and this has been written up in The New York Times uh, in more detail. Uh, Kaiser Health News has talked about it. The big uh, all these Aetna's under investigation by the Department of Justice, although no one seems to care who's an elective office in New York City about that, with the exception of a few brave council people. Uh, the model is CMS, which is the cash register. They're the folks that um, are pay the bills for Medicaid and Medicare. These uh, middle uh, organizations like Aetna Medicare Advantage. Uh, what they do is they send your file and then the business plan is that they they do this thing where they make you appear to be sicker than you are for the purpose of reimbursal. This is just a practice. Uman, all of them do it. And what they then do on the back end with you, the consumer, the patient, the subscriber, is they play hide the ball in terms of prior authorizations you know you get dressed up you get your walker in the car your kids help you get to the appointment and you go in there knock knock hello how are you oh i'm sorry you don't have the ticket that means you don't get seen today so that's a status that's what they're offering these people in their salad days this is and part of the problem here is that these people that have been nickel and dime with copays as well are people that were making minimum wage because the public unions uh, kind of laid down for like a couple of generations in terms of pay. And so they're people that are in food service, people that are in manual labor. They didn't make a whole lot of money. And so the covenant, the uh, if you were deferred compensation, was this free health care until they leave this earthly plane, which Mayor Adams, he's fine. He's decided he's going to rewrite that social contract. And nobody seems to be getting his way except for the retirees. Now, my union, SAG-AFTRA, pushed me. Exactly. Pushed me into going to Aetna as my uh, my insurance company. I've been unhappy with the result, but I don't know what else I can do. Well, so, you can get, you don't mourn organize. Uh, this is part of what is a national movement. Uh, it's... Uh, something that is getting traction. Public employees are feeling it first uh, because there's been an attack on public unions and a degrading of the social contract with work in general. And so what's happened for decades, uh, uh, the likes of Chris Christie, uh, Scott Walker from Wisconsin, they pit the public unions against everybody else. And because public employees had some of the vestiges of what used to be part of the social contract in America, that is health care, a pension plan. And then after Ronald Reagan did his PATCO dance and fired all the air traffic controllers, we had a new social contract informed by Milton Friedman, which is all about scarcity and all about individuals being stripped down to their basics and sitting by their phone waiting to get their work assignment for that day. We call it the precariat. And they sell that as the entrepreneurial spirit. And that means basically the demise of the social contract of employer and employee. 
Hasn't New York's New York State Senator Jessica Ramos, who chairs the Senate's Labor Committee, told WorkBites that she's committed to getting the single-payer New York Health, Air, Health Act passed because it would certainly leave a lot more money on the bargaining table for, for wages? Uh, listen, she's one of the ones who says something in a campaign and actually tries to make it happen in the real world. It's very unusual. Mm-hmm. It's very rare. We need to treat these people with the utmost respect and kindness because that's just not how politics is generally played. And of course, the people that are like that, they call them dangerous leftist radicals because they do hold a thought in their head and they do actually govern like they campaigned, which is anathema to the system as we know it. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Bob Henley. Uh, and uh, uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Bob, aren't we, you're, you're also broadcast on BAI, aren't we facing a major crisis of our own here at BAI? How serious is it? Well, so I guess, you know, we've been doing this a while, right? In different locations, you know, different public radio stations. And so crisis, crisis, schmices. What do you mean crisis? Like, I'm healthy. You're healthy, I hope. Uh, And I don't want to hit that bell too often. But it's no doubt that institutions that are based in the community that require people that are struggling and working to take really hard to come by, um, you know, discretionary money and put it towards something like BAI, that's harder. That's true. When you have the squeeze like inflation and when the Federal Reserve seems like seems like these workers are really getting full of themselves, you know, we're seeing wages rise to some degree and we've got to stamp that out. If America's going to build the wealth we've been counting on. Well, so under those pressures, you're right. Uh, it is a crisis, but I will say well, I see we're, some... we're faced with basic issues like not being sure we can pay the rent, pay uh, for our uh, transmitter tower, and uh, and salaries have become a problem as well. Well, and, and listen, we remember there was a robust central office. It's down to a, 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 a handful of people, uh, like your wonderful engineer, Reddy, Reggie. Uh, my, you know, Michael G. Haskins, the, the employees that uh, keep things going, and we have a shadow of what we were, and that's very stressful. And so you're right. If people believe in this institution, if they believe in the idea of having um, something like this station available for future generations, a platform upon which we can come up with a sense of what is going on, as we do every uh uh, Monday morning and Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. At 7 a.m. We have some form of what's going on and a place where people can call in. Yeah, it is. It is something that needs support. I would say that there's also a reason to have confidence that if you make that contribution, we will be able to hand this over to the next generation intact and in some cases improved. Well, since so that's ni- a, what we're asking people to do. Since 1960, WBAI Pacifica has been an important alternative to mainstream censorship because we address important issues that are often overlooked and we give voice to the voiceless and marginalized among us. Uh, so um, I think that, that uh, we are an alternative. We presented We are. We presented ourselves as an alternative. People appreciate that. But at the same time, we also need their support. 
and we- that's why we need them to call two and two two zero nine two nine five zero two and two two zero nine two nine five zero. Or go online to give to WBAI.org. And and during uh, this week, we're offering a series of collections that contain archive material on flash drive called The Best of BAI uh, for a pledge of $99. Um, There are three Best of BAI flash drives. The one that strikes me, of course, uh, most is Best of BAI shows and favorite hosts. (laughs) Did you make the cut? I don't know. I'm, I heard it's still being worked on, but um, I have uh, been part of BAI's history on and off for quite a long time. I joined BAI initially in 1978, and then or 77, I think it was, when I did a gospel right. show, uh, then left in 85 to work at another public radio station, <laughs> and then came back here three years ago. Yes, Saturn's return, as they say. I used to do a midnight to five talk show, which uh, on Monday nights, which is asking a lot of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and and the person who followed me would call me every once in a while, the one who was doing the show from five to seven, and she'd say, Leonard, I, I don't think I could make it in today. <laughs> Could you take over my shift? So I would do midnight to seven. Well, and I, I have to say, while we're uh, t- talking about the past, I mean, uh, one of the things that I think is sometimes lost uh, uh, when we are doing this thing, we're trying to get people to contribute and feel vested, is is talking about the fact that this is really uh, a thread that people uh, can have um, into shaping their own history. And so much of what happens today in social media, we're part of this vast pool. And so you're, you're marginalized. But here, it's every time that you call in and you're on the air, you convene a conversation of your neighbors. And so I have to say, on Monday, I was very moved by the number of unions and individuals, activists, who came on my program and pledged money. Ah. I mean, I think that's the thing, too, is that they gave their time and their money. And I think that's what we're asking for, because we know that you're probably involved in other activities. You're giving to other things. And so this is on a list of things that you need to do. And if you have your consciousness to the point where you're aware and this resonates, what we're talking about, this conversation, this through line has meaning for you then you're exactly the person that we're speaking to. And we're hoping that you can find your way clear, uh, whatever amount. You know, that's the other thing, too. It's the act as much as as anything. Uh, and also consider becoming a WBI buddy, because that does mm. give us a sense of institutional support. It's a way of having that level of security so that we can hire young people and say, yes, we commit to help train you in radio. You can have a job here, and it's possible for the station. And this, listen, this happens a lot with nonprofits and cause-oriented groups where they fall down on that social contract, where they indeed abuse their workforces. This happens. And so it's up for us to not be that kind of institution, and you are our stockholders. And so how this all turns out, folks, is up to you. So we need you to call 
212-209-2950. Or go to give2wbai.org. That's given the number 2wbai.org. Uh, let me explain what a BAI buddy is. It's a, a sustaining member for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month or whatever is comfortable for the listener. Some people have a lot of money. It allows us to plan for the future, feel a little more secure, and we will send a WBAI tote bag to, to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. I haven't seen a lot of those bags out on, on the subway, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of them. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or online, give to WBAI.org. Because remember, over the years, WBAI Radio has won awards for its news, arts, and music programs. And uh, we, uh, we need to pay the basic bills for those things, transmitters, rent, things like that. Please come through for us, okay? And we're doing with that Medicare Advantage ads. That's right. Give us your future health care. We'll give you a platinum walker. Let's get back to some of the other stories you've been uh, writing about. Uh, you mentioned New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Hasn't his administration been accused of discriminatory employment practices and how it compensates hundreds of probation officers? Well, and that's a that's a uh, a story that's underreported and work bites. Uh, my colleagues uh, Steve Wishnia, um and Joe Maniscalco. Um, we we have this uh, website that's worker driven called Workbites, uh, and so this is a story that really goes back years. Uh, it is true that Mayor Adams is the current occupant of Gracie Mansion, and so the legacy issues of um, uh, racial discrimination that has been really part of in New York City. Leonard is kind of like it, it's a little bit of a plantation. Don't let all of the liberal uh, veneer fool you. But there's certain situations like historically the fire department, like EMS, FDNY, where it just works out that white males are on top because that's just been what's always easiest. And that's always been the best way to go. So we've had like a long time of that. And so the Vulcan Society, uh, the uh, fraternal organization for African-American FDY employees, brought a lawsuit, uh, started in the early 2000s, uh, uh, finally during the de Blasio administration after over a decade of court action, they settled it. There was 94 some odd million dollars paid out uh, to the, some of the people that have been victimized by that systemic uh, racism with the part of the, the FDY had like 3% people of color at its at its low point. So the probation officer is kind of a similar story. So these are individuals that are, as uh, Devaney Powell, who is uh, uh, the high energetic leader of this unit, uh, points out this the Union Pro United Probation Officers Association, uh, several hundred uh, primarily women of color, uh, college educated, required to carry a gun, uh, plain clothes, uh, working to try to keep people out of jail and helping young people and uh, other folks that have on the wrong side of the law get on the right side of the law and community in their own future. Uh, not very popular, but they're paid uh, like in the mid 40,000s. They're paid several thousands of dollars less annually than their mostly male counterparts in the NYPD, even though they're also required to carry guns. 
Right, exactly. And so this is something that finally uh, they're represented by Yetta Curlin, the attorney. They have passed a, 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 a initial threshold in uh, federal courts that they can continue um, their case. Uh, it's a Title VII discrimination case. I lay out the history of Title VII, and it's had an important role. I mean, uh, under uh, Arthur Chialotis and Gloria Middleton's leadership of CWA 1180, um, they've got, I don't know, 12,000, 13,000 administrative managers in the city across all city agencies. This is another job title where we had many women of color, some with advanced degrees, uh, getting paid tens of thousands of dollars less every year than they were entitled to when you look at the comparables with what white males were getting for the same job. That's in New York City. It's the same thing with FDNY EMS. They have 13 days of sick days, limited, and the fire department, unlimited sick time, and EMTs make tens of thousands of dollars less than firefighters. And so it's having this pernicious effect where after three years on the job, they can apply for what the department calls a promotion and leave EMS and go on to the FDNY to be firefighters. Now, that's nice for them and their families. But the big losers are the city of New York because we lose experienced EMTs because it's not the career track being a firefighter is, and we know from peer-reviewed emergency medicine that it takes at least six years to get up to the kind of skill where you can bring people back with success when they have a heart attack. So it's that simple. This is another example where New York City is not about a caring economy. It is about serving the wealthy. And so these unions are fighting the fight, not just for their members, but for everybody in the community. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The show is Leonard Lopate at Large. is one of my colleagues here at WBAI, but also uh, writes regularly for any number of publications, including Salon. And now the, the revived Village Voice, Bob? Uh, working with R.C. Baker, who's the editor. Um, happy to see them uh, come back. It was the, I guess, uh, I had been at the Hudson Dispatch, a scrappy blue-collar daily paper uh, west of the Hudson. And then uh, moved over to The Voice. My first cover story was Exxon Slimes, New York, after they lied about the Arthur Kill spill back in the 1980s. Uh, and I'm glad it's back. And they're doing some great stuff. There's a wonderful piece in there by a young journalist whose name slips my mind. You know how it happens these days, Leonard. A uh, very good piece about uh, the 24- we get older, what can we do? That's right. Make sure we're surrounded by smart young people <laughs> who are patient. Uh, and so this uh, author looks at the, the issue of, and it's something we've had in our program, and I, I, it's been throughout the BAI dial, program day, is a case of these home care workers 
who are paid for 13 hours a day, but end up having to hang in the domicile of the individual who they are serving 24 hours a day. So it's a form mm. of modern day slavery. And this writer very uh, skillfully uh, takes us to the U.N., where they're having to go to plead their case because it really is an abomination. Once again, in Democratic blue, New York City, modern day slavery, who knew? You recently wrote an article about something uh, that is happening in Trenton. Do you want to talk about that? Well, I guess something that's not happening. So um, yes, I was, uh, May 11th, uh, there was a great rally uh, the nurses for fighting for uh, uh, staffing levels that we talked about in California. Uh, the nurses unions have come together. New Jersey AFL-CIO is leading the charge along with HPAE and uh, President Debbie White. They want to establish the same kind of standards. So anyway, I finished up. I had everything I needed. And I used to, you know, back when I was at WNYC and still to this day, I, I got into Trenton and I, you know, there used to be a... Um, uh, at least in my last recollection, was that there was a place that reporters, each major news organization, had an office in the state capitol. Now, for several years, um, access to the governor's uh, part of the state capitol has been closed off because they were doing a $300 million renovation that started under Governor Christie. And so that area was closed off. And so I had to tie my hands after finishing up the stuff with the nurse rally. I thought I saw a door that was in the basement that takes me to the upper floor. It was always my secret way of being on time. So I the door was finally available to have someone go in there. And I go in there and see up to the, uh, the first floor. And it looks beautifully renovated. And all the uh, old white men in oil are hanging there. There's... Uh, you know, Governor uh, Woodrow Wilson, all that. And so I then go upstairs above the governor's office where there used to be this huge wing of the New York Times office, the Star Ledger office, the Brigham Record. All that is gone. All of those offices are gone. And in their place, more governor's offices, don't you know? And so being an investigative reporter with shoe leather burn, I make inquiry of the state police. Where is press row? And so this creates a little kerfuffle because nobody had been asked. I guess, well, it's journalism is so dead, nobody noticed. So eventually, sheepishly, someone says it's on an upper floor. So I uh, get in the elevator and I go up to uh, the floor above where the press offices used to be. And there's my old friend and colleague, Charlie Style, a great reporter's reporter, political columnist from the Bergen Record. And the brother is alone, Leonard. He's the only one. In a kind of, I don't know, cubicle space for a small public library in a rural community. And so, in essence, Press Row is gone. So like, are you they don't need that, reporters. Are you saying that New Jersey, to some degree, is just trying to get rid of the uh, press coverage of Well, of it's gone. I mean, it's it's this is this goes to uh not to circle back to the pledge, but it's kind of connected uh to the pledge drive. But one of the realities is that couple things have happened. We've talked in this show about the evil empire known as Gannett Publishing, which <laughs> owns one in five uh, newspapers. And what they do <laughs> is they find trusted regional newspapers that families used to own and buy the entire enterprise and then dissect it and sell it for parts. 
and then they sell the printing plant because God knows you don't need a printing plant. And then they lay off everybody except one poor mope young person who really wants to be a reporter, poor fool. And they send that person all around to five counties. So that's journalism. And so this is all driven by Wall Street. And at the same time, like we saw with Governor Christie, Governor Christie figured out he could use taxpayer money to get his message out. So he created a little social media squad. There were state employees whose job it was to get out whatever the alpha male bully wanted to put out that day, whatever miserable thing he was communicating, whatever public abuse he wanted to take the highest level and punish somebody. He had employees to do that. And so getting the word out, he didn't need WNYC. He didn't need anybody. And so that was the beginning of the end. Well, as uh, I began our, this segment, I point out that many important news stories get little attention on the establishment media until they can't be ignored. You often pick up on them earlier. Do people come to you with the stories? Well, I guess it's the, it's the blessing of longevity and having seen a lot of bad things happen. And so you kind of get the rhythm of it, right? It's like you, you see smell something where, going wrong. Right. Well, so an example would be because of the fact that I was that I worked on the Erie Lackawanna Railroad, that I'm familiar with what's happening with the rail industry. And I've done so many different physical jobs, not just being a reporter. My sense of the re world is informed by the working experience of building houses, operating heavy equipment, clearing land, like real things. It's not abstract. So when I hear and read something like what happened in East Palestine and I see who's in charge of the cleanup and the vinyl chloride tanks and the rest, I know where it's going from there because I've worked on ballast. I have tried to clean up super messes like, you know, not on that scale, but certain messes. And so what's the untold story always? The community and workers. And what's the thing that usually the the media misses in the beginning workers in the community so stake those places out talk to those people and you'll have a scoop don't you think one of the problems is that on uh the mainstream media and even and in, in the supposedly serious news shows a story rarely gets more than 10 minutes well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. But I then mean, I also, try, I, I'm very concerned about that here. I give a topic a full hour. Uh, I, I get a guest on and do a full hour. I don't start off by saying this is the way things are. Do you agree and have the guest say you're absolutely right, right Leonard? Uh, I really do want to find out what's going on and, and pick the brains of people who know what's going on. Um I, I, maybe that's uh, why I'm so pleased that I'm at BAI, because BAI has given me this opportunity to do that. So I would say that the problem here is that it's uh, the reality that and there's some science on this, that our attention spans have been shrinking. So the ability to stay focused and that, I think, to some degree, is related to being bombarded by uh, by social media and being bathed in information without insight. And so after a while, it just kind of goes by. And so you don't have a, a, a things like, for instance, like public, the airwaves, the broadcast airwaves, 
that belongs to the public, but a decision was made as part of the financialization of all things of value that something that was held in a public trust could be turned into real estate. And so all through the Clinton and Bush years, uh, public uh, the idea of the public airwaves, which is still true as a, as a point of law that's owned by the public, you ended up having the Murdochs of the world treat it as their real estate and a regulatory um, and, and legislative uh, system that supported that. And so public affairs, there used to be a requirement for a certain amount of public affairs programming, mm-hmm. a certain amount of local news. All of that went by the wayside. And at the same time, they got rid of reporting, actually boots on the ground. And I think we've told this story. When I first started at the Ramsey Morrow Reporter for the princely son of, of some of five cents per printed inch, Really, I was covering town council meetings, $5 if I took a photo. And at these um, at these places, at city council meetings uh, in, in Ramsey and in Mawa that I covered, there were three or four other older adults who owned a car and were supporting a family on reporting on local news. That architecture is gone entirely. And what's in its place? But social media and stuff the government puts out that drives the conversation. And then on top of that, you have social media that these content providers and purveyors like Facebook are promulgating that is unauthenticated um, information that's designed to elicit a response, not to inform, but to get you to buy something or to hate someone. And we wonder why we couldn't have a comprehensive, holistic response to a pandemic. We are bumping into each other without even a common reality to share. We can't even say who won the last presidential election. Well, we can say who won it. We just... uh, But not agree. Yeah. But that's because there's always a group, uh, a, a segment of the American population that feels like it's being left out. Uh, And it's interesting, uh, that can be on the left and on the right. Right, and that's what's happened, is that this becomes a formulaic thing where they program to your, your bias. And so you get reaffirmed in your beliefs and prejudices, not challenged and informed. And so... That's I'd like to think we have this on BI. That's why we still have the lines open for callers. Uh, one of the great examples of how pernicious this is and how the public is disturbed is the story of a friend of mine that was a news director for a top 40 family owned radio station uh, in around the Jersey Shore area. It got to be so robust. They had six or seven reporters, which is a very healthy local radio station in terms of the profile of the workforce. That's the kind of station that can hold the newspapers accountable because they're present in the community. Over time, a national chain bought this radio station. And one of the devoted elderly listeners told my friend, who was the news director at the time, that um, he was so disappointed because his, his trailer was almost destroyed by a storm because the radio station that my friend had been at was playing the weather from Southern California. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, they saved some money by being able to buy <laughs> Exactly. <doing that. laughs> no place in particular media. 
So how do you come upon some of these stories? Do people call you? I know that I get unsolicited things in the mail from people who say, I love your show. Um, I've written this thing. Uh, Would you take a look at it and decide whether it's something you want to talk about on your show? I would say that uh, one of the sources, uh, certainly when I was at the chief leader, is the workforce. And so um, and so I've made it a point of maintaining contacts in um, in unions and not just with leadership, but with rank and file. And also one of the big challenges in covering the labor movement is that uh, ideally labor unions are supposed to be a reflection of democracy. And so you have to make an effort to get to know who are the challengers. Who are the folks that stand up at the union meeting are and sometimes are a threat to the power structure within the union? You need to be open to all the players. And so once you do that and you're established and you and you, you know, one of the things I've been successful in doing is people bring to me stories where one we just had on the radio and I was so moved. The guy gave one hundred dollars. He's a retiree TW bus driver, Anthony Tusis, very um, he had been someone that was involved with uh, 9-11. His job was to pick up cops and firefighters and rotate them down into from the precinct and firehouses around the five boroughs, bring them to the World Trade Center. Uh, he ended up coming down with prostate cancer. Uh, it was 9-11 World Trade Center related. He ended up going through all his sick time after a long and um a uh, wonderful career at the MTA. He blew through all his sick time and he knew there was a state law that said if you're a public employee and you're a 9-11 World Trade Center person who had these afflictions, which, by the way, came as a result of the uh, the air that was down there, the EPA said it was safe to breathe. If you're someone who's been in that situation, you don't have to use your sick time. And nobody in the MTA would give this guy any satisfaction. So... I worked on it, researched it, held the MTA accountable. Boom. He got his sick time. Once you do that once, brother, you get a line out the door mm. because I am much cheaper than a lawyer. <laughs> well, you've written a lot about uh, what the aftermath of 9-11, uh, but it has largely become a non-story. But people are still suffering, aren't they? Well, and, and I will say that also I'm happy to report that there is a, a, a bill working its way through the New York State Legislature, the 9-11 Notice Act, which is going to um, require employers to uh, circle back and let people know who are in lower Manhattan or in per- portions of Western Brooklyn that they may qualify for the World Trade Center Health Program and the 9-11 Fixed Compensation Fund. So that's an important development uh, that's been something that needs to be highlighted. In terms of the impact, yes, one of the things that's happened is there, uh, the 9-11 World Trade Center Health Program is uh, is hurting for funds. It has enough to get through, I believe, this year and into the next, but there is a shortfall. And so there's an effort afoot led by uh, Kirsten Gillibrand um, and I believe Menendez and Booker on uh, the Jersey side to actually uh, plug in, I think it's be two, two to $3 billion so that this, this can go into 2090. Because one of the things that's not widely known or appreciated is that when the EPA said the air was safe to breathe, we, we know uh, Chrissy Ty Whitman uttered that. We know that an Inspector General report in 2003 from the EPA found that this was manipulated information that came out of the Bush White House Environmental Quality Council. 
and that the Bush administration was more concerned with keeping Wall Street open than with the long-term public health issues. And as a consequence, more people have died from the occupational health exposure. And that the exposure here includes hundreds of thousands of civilians and young people like Nyla Nordstrom, who was a senior yeah, at Stuyvesant was- High School right next door to the World Trade Center and some 19,000, and the UFT has been very uh, good about this, trying to get the word out, 19,000 K through 12 kids at the time who were in dozens of schools in that portion of Western Brooklyn and lower Manhattan, south of the canal, who have an elevated risk. And there have been cases of young people dying as a consequence of these diseases and having these prognoses that are really challenging and often came upon them because they had no idea. So it's really important that people be aware. Um, There's also a problem where first responders um, have, as a matter of right, a lifetime annual screening. And so that's something that 90 some odd percent of firefighters, cops and other uh, first responders, uh, people that were on the ground have taken advantage of, but survivors have to exhibit symptoms first. So yes. there's uh, that, a real that, gap. That's what I was going to ask you about. I was in the area at the time. I had voted and I was walking toward WNYC's studios on at the Center time. Street, right. And I, I actually watched one of the planes go into, the second plane go into the building. Uh, but I haven't had any symptoms as a result. Am I, am I just lucky, or uh, should I assume that uh, it, it might still happen somewhere down the line? Because I, I assume that there are other people who had similar experiences to mine. Well, it, it's all over the place. And of course, when it comes to healthcare, we're like snowflakes. Each one is different, everyone is different. But one of the things to keep in mind is that. Um, I've had these so many of these conversations with individuals who have maybe even had uh, and these were public employees who had a skin lesion that was uh, cancer. Hmm. They felt like, oh, I don't want to make a fuss about this. This is for people that were cops or firefighters. And then in this one case, the individual lost their arm. Hmm. So I will tell you that um, there people are just unaware of this. And so one of the other problems is that. Our concept of 9-11 is as a discrete thing that happened on one day. And so when I go down there, which I do uh, with some frequency and interview people from around the world who flock down there and I ask them about this ongoing toll, uh, they they are surprised. There's a disconnect, much the same disconnect that we have about the pandemic and the impact on essential workers. There's a theme here. We tend in the capitalist society to be conditioned to be blind to the suffering of workers. It's the foundation. It's the cement that makes the accumulation of great wealth possible is a reckless disregard and almost like unconscious of human suffering. That's the only way you can be a billionaire like Michael Bloomberg. Now, we are pretty much out of time, but in the last minute or so, uh, what are you looking into? Is there a story that we're going to be discussing the next time you come on our show? So I, I think certainly the challenge of how do we handle the massive number of um you know, folks that are coming across the border. And and I say, uh, you know, and it's a challenge certainly to what's coming to New York City. And so one of the things that we have here is there's two, there's two competing 
the, the world of abundance and the world of scarcity. If you're someone that believes there's not enough to go around, then the walls can never be high enough and you have to, but on the other, the flip side, if you're someone that believes in abundance and that there is enough to go around, then you have like this approach of faith and openness to other human beings and the potential of, 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 of humanity. And so that's really that. what's at work here. What's work here is that the worldview of scarcity, if there is enough to go around, means that we have to batten down the hatches. And meanwhile, what's happening is, and this is what's so sad, is New York City is fighting this battle where they're not doing things like fully funding the parks they're nickel and diming nurses and this is in a city in a state that has been refunding the stock transfer tax and what is that that's five cents per hundred dollars per benjamin franklin that was on the books since before the first world war put there by a republican governor and in the 1980s some neoliberals decided that they would refund it to wall street and in the last 10 years we have given back wall street 138 billion dollars well, i so, have to leave it there we're going to talk about it next time you're on our show bob henley award-winning print and broadcast journalism journalist you can hear his BAI show on Monday mornings. You can read him in Salon and other publications. We're done so quick. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's an hour. Uh, <laughs> his book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy. You're like a therapist. It's always short the hour. <laughs> Meanwhile, oh, that does bring us to the end of our show. And if you'd like to check out more about one-hour interviews, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at BAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. But uh, as Bob and I have been asking you, please consider stepping up and supporting BAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or calling code 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the station coming to weekdays. Um, we also are offering uh, the Best of BAI flash drive, um, shows and uh, Best of BAI shows and favorite hosts, or BAI, uh, classic past historical truths or current events and consequences. That's for $99. Either way, the number to call 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. Also, consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, and that allows us to plan for the future. We're off tomorrow, but we hope that you can join us again on Thursday when Ian Baruma will discuss his latest book, The Collaborators. And we will see you then.